And welcome back, Undertow listeners. Uh, we have reconvened and are back to bring you an updated episode of the Undertow podcast. This is the podcast dedicated to the crime comics of Ed Brubaker and Sean Phillips. And this evening, quite a bit of talk about Jacob Phillips as well, as he's been quite active the last few months. Um, this is Robert Watson here in Missouri. And on the other end of the line, I have Mr. Bubba Beasley. Hey, everybody. Glad to finally be back online. And yeah, I've been missing this. The uh, Pine of Guinness is here on the uh, on the table in front of me, along with the stack of books that we're going to be covering tonight. And yeah, glad to be back. And um, for whatever few few uh, listeners we still have sticking around, hopefully the, the, we haven't had too much drop off. But uh, you're still here. We're glad you're here, too. Yeah, we we appreciate your patience, and uh, yeah. So Bubba and I have been have been uh, have been talking a bit and collecting our notes here over the last month or so, and and getting our schedules coordinated. But we are both online at the same time this evening, and we are happy to be talking about comic books and uh, bringing you a new episode of the Undertow Podcast. And uh, I've got some bourbon within arm's reach. So very nice. Um, what what kind? Uh, we're going with Evan Williams Single Barrel tonight, um, which. Uh, is about my my pick of bourbon right now. It's about at the top of the heap. Um, Evan Williams single barrel, and they age it for about eight to ten years. Wow! Um, and it's reasonably priced, so uh, can't go wrong. Neat on the rocks. Uh, on the rocks. Very cool. Uh, I've got a uh, in a branded Guinness glass. The Guinness Draft Stout is actually the the last of the. Um, white collector cans that they had been putting out. I've been saving it for a special occasion and hoping it wouldn't go funky, you know, uh, uh, skunky, and it hasn't. And, uh, yeah, recording tonight, yeah, we've, we, uh, uh, Robert and I have both been busy, and, and one thing I heard in the 2009, the 08-09 recession is still true, true now, is that there are worse things in the world than being too busy. And life is life is definitely going well, but it's one of those. What was it the uh, the the U two song "Running to Stand Still" or the um, uh, the uh, Alice in, in Wonderland or Through the Looking Glass? The um, takes all the running you can do to keep in the same place. Right now, that place has been good, but it's been a lot of running. So I'm gl- I am thrilled that we were able to uh, get uh, get our schedules aligned and and set aside some time. Uh, particularly right now, we're recording uh, Monday night, uh, July 27th, just in time for for a uh, new uh, Br- Brubaker and Phillips release. Finally, finally, they're back. Yeah, like Bubba said, this is a uh, you know it's the the first time in in a, in a while that we do have a new Brubaker and Phillips book on the horizon. So um, we're kind of you know we're we're in the final hour here because the book drops pulp drops on Wednesday. Um, so we wanted to to uh, kind of get together, get coordinated, and talk about what's happened in the world of Brubaker and Phillips over the last three months or so, um, kind of leading up to to the release of Pulp, which has been a long time coming, um, but that's set to drop July 29th, this Wednesday, along with that Texas Blood number 2. Yep, and that that's a good uh, as good a segue as any for me to kick off and, uh, with a couple news items. And that's the first news item is Pulp is out this week. It's original graphic novel by uh, Ed Brubaker and Sean Phillips. It's the third such uh, original graphic novel uh, published through Image in hardcover in this this slightly oversized uh, volume. Um, first, we had 
uh, a blue book, a, a baby blue book. My heroes have always been junkies in October 2018. Then we had Bad Weekend, the the extended edition of Bad Weekend, uh, July of 2019. So almost a, well, exactly a, a year ago this month. And now we have uh, the and that that was kind of the pink and purple book. And now we have the burnt orange book, uh, Ed Brubaker's Sean Phillips Pulp. So the uh, the PR push for uh, this uh, original graphic novel has already started. Saw a uh, a very brief interview with uh, Ed Brubaker um, published just today on Sci-Fi Wire, July 27th. S Y F Y Sci-Fi Wire. A brief interview with uh, Ed Brubaker, and then I also saw um, published yesterday uh, at the uh, site Monkeys Fighting Robots an advanced review of uh, of the book i did not go in, um, uh, read read the whole thing i try to keep myself free from spoilers and that sort of thing but i glanced at the title glanced at the very last line so the title pulp is a brilliant revenge epic with the volume turned down and then the very last line must read so there you go in in both cases there are there are images you know preview images but it's the same preview images that we've we've seen before from the, uh, the 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 trailer um, for uh, pulp, or what's already been published uh, in Ed Brubaker's uh, email newsletter. Uh, his last newsletter uh, came out uh, middle of May, uh, right? Um, uh, yeah, May thirteenth. Nothing since. So haven't seen a news. Haven't seen any extended previews uh, for the issue, but uh, that may change between between our recording this on Monday night and whenever I get around to uh, blogging about the released uh, podcast uh, on the blog, uh, criminal, criminal um, alongside pulp, the graphic novel. We also have uh, the second issue of uh, Jacob Phillips, uh, new book, uh, that Texas blood. So issue two comes out this week. The, uh, if you, you didn't catch issue number one, a second printing did come out last week. So issue one came out on June 24th. The second printing of issue one, of issue one came out on July 22nd. And uh, the new issue, issue two, um, is due uh, July 29th. Um, yeah, there was really a it, – it really was a huge response, it really seemed like, to the first issue. Um, I was surprised at just the amount of buzz and the amount of press around the issue. Um and I know it sold out at my local shop, and I think it sold out a lot of other places as well in, in pretty quick fashion. Yep. Um, I, wa- I uh, uh, was very glad that they had copies hold- held for me in, in the pull list because I saw when I came in um, that day, and, it, and I don't think I came in very late that uh, new comic book day, that Wednesday. I think they had one copy left on the shelf. And that one quickly disappeared. I noticed uh, by the the time I ne- the next time I was in next week. So yeah, um, so a lot coming out uh, this week. But as best as I can tell, no news about the next project for um, for uh, Ed Brubaker and Sean Phillips. What's been teased uh, pri- prior is that a uh, the next project is going to be another monthly series. It sounds like it's not going to be criminal, but Lord knows, you know, with with all of the um, with the pandemic and the lockdown and the economic slowdowns and everything else, um, Lord knows how the how the plans have changed for the uh, new product to to get on the uh, to get underway. 
Yeah, this, just a quick note on that. Um, I did listen to, um, Ed was featured on um, a relatively recent podcast, the off-panel podcast, available on sketched.com, S-K-T-C-H-D.com, um, kind of right about the time that Friday was released. So it's it's a few months ago. Um, so maybe this, maybe things have changed since then, but he did talk about that monthly comic, um, and I'll read the quote he mentioned on that. He said, Sean and I were going to launch a monthly comic in August, but that's not happening now. Um, until they get a better sense of what the market looks like, when things will be solicited, etc. And he mentioned that the series was going to run for two or three years. Um, and then he also mentioned a, another serialized graphic novel on the horizon. So those came up in interviews. But again, those were a couple of months ago at this point. Um, so again, we, we know things are crazy right now. Things are changing. No one really knows where everything's going to land schedule-wise, but... It does sound like a monthly book is on the horizon and another serialized graphic novel. Sean Phillips, speaking of Sean Phillips, he did do a variant cover for um, That Texas Blood Number 1. And then he uh, he was also credited as doing publication design for that book. So yep. he does have his hand in that book in a limited capacity, although his son Jacob Phillips is obviously the the main artist on the book. But Sean is you know kind of helping out behind the scenes. Yeah. And uh, continuing to do covers, I think, for uh, Criterion and, and that sort of thing. Right. So he's, he's keeping busy. And um, and, and while we're uh, waiting for um, news about the next project, we do have other books coming out. I know you had asked um, about uh, Parker to get to in a second, but uh, just noticed the – October solicitations uh, for Marvel Comics. They have an advanced uh, solicit for um, a new printing of uh, Captain America by Ed Brubaker, Omnibus Volume 1 hardcover. Uh, That's uh, with Steve Epting, and it's uh, scheduled to be on sale January 27th, 2021, which almost feels like science fiction when you write it out. But yeah, it's on the horizon, and it's much more of a batman fan in terms of the superhero stuff i still haven't have never really gotten into to brubaker's marvel stuff whether it be uh i know the big one's captain america but there's also um daredevil and x-men x-men which i i heard you know mixed reviews about and oh there was one he did with fraction um uh, iron Iron fist Iron iron fist that's right yeah so so this might be I, I might be slowly working my way through through his Marvel books as well. So but um you had you had mentioned offline uh Parker. That's the other thing on the horizon. Uh yeah, the, the Martini so, edition. Yeah, so there were a few details that um that came out too again. This is a, a few months ago when Ed was kind of doing the when Ed was making the rounds with with press, you know, to promote Friday, but around that time he did give an update on the second Parker Martini edition. Um, Bubba and I just looked that up. It is set to come out in September. Um, but so Brubaker mentioned that he wrote the story before officially getting permission from Donald Westlake's wife, um, and he was nervous about it because he said no one's ever written an original Parker story before. They've all just been adaptations um, of Donald Westlake's work. So he said it's it's an 18-page original story, um, and then he mentioned in his newsletter 
As an added bonus for the book, Sean and I did a brand new story as a tribute to Darwin and Donald Westlake. It was both an honor and terrifying to be given permission by Abby Westlake to write an original story in the Parker world, um, which I'm not sure anyone else has ever done. I'm really grateful that Scott and Marsha let us be a part of this book and get to pay tribute to Darwin, who I feel like I owe so much of my career to. Um, and the story is entitled A Growfield Story by Ed Brubaker and Sean Phillips. Oh, nice. Um, and, so, Ella, and, yeah. and, and for those who, who aren't um, hip deep in Parker, Grofield, Alan Grofield, uh, he has his own, um, or um, he, he's another character by um, Donald Westlake under the, the, the pseudonym Richard Stark, that, where if Parker is basically the hard-boiled anti-hero, um, Grofield is pretty much the comic relief. If I, if I remember correctly... Um, Slayground begins with a heist gone wrong and all of the, uh, the players separating and, um, Parker and Grofield are both in, in that same heist. Slayground is Parker's story. And then there's a Grofield story that has, I think literally the very same first chapter. And then it focuses on Grofield. So the new printing for the volume one, the first volume simply called the martini edition which has the the first two uh of the four uh um, parker books parker adaptations i believe it was uh it is already out i believe it came out june 12th or uh, mid-june and then the martini edition last call so the uh described at idw as the long-awaited companion to the eisner award-winning martini edition um is scheduled for september 2020 so Cool. Just, yeah, and 18, way, 18 pages. Yeah. 18 page original story by Ed Brubaker and Sean Phillips. Beautiful. Yeah, and just uh, another couple of quick notes uh, before we transition. Um, yeah, like I said, Ed Brubaker was, was featured on the Off Panel podcast. Uh, Marcos Martin, the artist from Friday, was also featured on Off Panel, which went live on May 11th. Um, I haven't had a chance to listen to that episode yet, but you can also hear uh, Marcos on the same podcast. Just the other interesting thing that that came out of Ed's interview, he mentioned that, you know, we know everything's crazy with the comics market and the impact of the pandemic. And he mentioned that everyone doing creator-owned comics is essentially writing off a year worth of income. So um, just to, to kind of put in perspective how things are in disarray. So the fact that we do have a few new books on the horizon, obviously, I feel... I'm very grateful for. So maybe things will will stabilize and we'll get back to some kind of regular cadence. Yep. Both for both for the creators and for their eager audiences. So right. Yeah. Really looking forward to to carving out some time this week for pulp and just you know, I have even cleaned out the uh, the 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 chair next to the bed. I've been calling we call the sidecar, and I now have the perfect reading space again. And yes. Nice. Yes. 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 Yeah. No. It was uh. It, you know. It was. It was kind of like a bonus. I think during these. You know, when the, the comic shops were closed, which they've now reopened, uh, I think, in most places, but um, or at least here I know they have. But, um, you know, so in that kind of interim, we, we, we got Brutal Dark, which popped up, um, which is uh, Jacob Phillips' book with, with uh, Chris Condon that they're doing through Patreon for a dollar a month. So, you know, we got that, and then we got Friday, which was another online comic, which... Um, you know, Ed had alluded to another a project with what he was calling one of his favorite artists. So we knew it wasn't Sean Phillips, just because basically the way that he was promoting it. We knew it wasn't his normal partnership. But yeah, he's not um, a big fan of Phillips, and neither are we. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
so yeah, we got Friday and that, you know, that came out at the, at the perfect time. Um, and I've been kind of, you know, expecting number two to, to have come out, um, over the last few weeks, but thus far we've only gotten one issue. Um, but I did notice that he mentioned, and in one of these interviews, he mentioned that the second issue of Friday was something like 38. Yeah. He said 36 or 38 pages for chapter two. And that was in the off panel podcast. So, um, He's obviously had it written for a while, so I'm not sure what the what the bottleneck or when the expected release date is for that. But obviously, a number two will come out at some point in time, and it's it's billed as an ongoing book um, through the comic is available on PanelSyndicate.com. Panelsyndicate. Yep, uh, uh, digital only, um, and in this case, yeah, just as. Uh, Chris Condon and Jacob Phillips, their their brutal dark is a dollar or more, and I'll be honest, I'm I'm doing a dollar and hoping all the a lot of the extras end up in a uh, print edition, but with Panel Syndicate, it's it's pay what you want. Yeah. And um, yeah, uh, issue number one uh, came out April fifteenth, and so it's you know May June July where we're now three and a Over half three months. months. Yeah. Um, and. Yeah, uh, uh, from two creators who don't have a very large, um, best as I can tell, a very large uh, footprint in social media. You know, Ed Brubaker quit Twitter years ago and and now does his uh, his email newsletter, and he and that's that's been uh, it's been two months since since the latest email. And meanwhile, I did some digging around, and yeah, um, Marcos Martin, uh, a uh, described on Wikipedia as a Spanish artist, so I think Catalan might be might be more precise. Uh, Catalonia, you know, Barcelona area, that sort of thing. Um, I was able to find a Marcos Martin on Twitter, a comic artist Marcos Martin on Twitter, but from Brazil, and clearly not the same guy. So yeah, it'll come out when it comes out. In the meantime, um, I thought it thought it was a decent read. So. Yeah, no, I thoroughly enjoyed it, and you know, I've I think Panel Syndicate kind of, you know, when it, it first was on my radar, I believe the first book they released was The Private Eye, um, which I think I recommended it on an earlier episode of the Undertow podcast. But that was a book from Brian K. Vaughn and Marcos Martin. So Marcos Martin has has you know been with Panel Panel Syndicate. I think that's somewhat his baby. Um, you know, between him and Brian K. Vaughn, I think that was something that they created, and then they've released subsequent books. But this is obviously, uh, I believe, this is Ed Brubaker's first, you know, foray into online digital comics. Um, obviously, he's a big print guy, so this was an interesting dynamic to release a, a, a you know, an online only comic, and he even addressed that in some of his interviews. Um, but yeah, Marcos Martin, the art style is real interesting. It's 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 not particularly similar to Sean Phillips' style. Um, I saw a quote where, uh, and I guess Brubaker and Martin had worked once before on a Captain America annual. Um, and then Newsarama describes Martin's art style as a slightly more stylized spin on John Romita Sr. And then Ed was describing it and said, his style has been evolving over the years into something almost more like a classic newspaper strip artist from the 30s or an EC artist from the 50s. Um, so... Yeah, it's an interesting book. I assume most of most of our listeners have probably checked it out, but um, if not, yeah, go to panelsyndicate.com. Like Bubba said, it's a, a pay what you want model, and you can download it um, and read it on you know whatever your your online 
your preferred online platform is for reading comics, digital comics. Yep. And I do think um, yeah, that you're, you're right. This is Marcos Martin's uh, baby. He's, I think, the, the, the co-founder for Pan- Panel Syndicate, though it has expanded to, to other, other artists and other writers, obviously, uh, beyond, um, what was it, Vaughn, uh, Brian K. Vaughn. Yeah. Um, and, but um, it not only has expanded beyond just Vaughn and um, – and Marcos Martin, but it has also expanded, um, or it, it, the, the, the books themselves, a few of them have, have made the jump from digital only into print, like Bra- Barrier by Brian K. Vaughn and Marcus Martin. There was a uh, walk, uh, they, the, the pair also did a, a Walking Dead one shot that I think has subsequently been, uh, it's been, been printed. printed. Yeah. So, yeah. And the Private Eye came out in kind of a fancy, um, hardcover to, you know, from image a few years after it was released digitally. Um, so that's available in print. And then, oh, that was another interesting little nugget from the podcast. So, um, Ed mentioned that this book, um, is designed to be printed in the same dimensions as the original versions of Darwin Cook's Parker books. So there's another kind of Parker overlap there. Interesting. Um, which suggests yeah, maybe no. that, that he's already talked with IDW since they're the ones who uh, publish the Parker books. Right, so. right. So it does sound like, you know, uh, eventually I'm sure that this will get printed um, in some fashion. Um, yep. Both these are these are high-profile creators. I'm sure it will. Um, but, yeah, and I guess it was prompted. So Marcos actually prompted, w- was the one to first reach out to Ed about working on a comics project. Um, but Brubaker said this story had been percolating in his head since he was in his 20s um, and referred to it as a horror story. So that'll give you some some idea of kind of where it's headed. Yeah. Um, and and he I think did, even yeah. mentioning Lovecraft, I think. Yeah. Influence, so, so um, yeah, the, it's it's just to let our listeners know. Yeah, I um, I think I paid three bucks for the digital um, just to, to, to support them and what I'm planning to do the same as the individual uh, issues come out, but definitely waiting for a, a print edition. And in the meantime, this is something to enjoy, but yeah, there's something to be said for, for the physical, physical book. And thought it was very, uh, this first issue, a very enjoyable read. And it's also, like you said, the art style is not, yeah, you know, it's 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 a different art style, just like it's a different vibe than than, yeah. than what we're seeing from Sean Phillips or Steve Epting, or kind of those usual collaborators, or or even you know Michael Lark. But but with um, Brubaker's writing, you know, it, it almost it's written very similarly to almost something like um, like my heroes have always been junkies, you know, the 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 teenage girl protagonist, or right. um, kind of the. What, what he described as post YA post young adult fiction in terms not in terms of of readers who have moved on from young adult but what happened to the characters who have grown up from from that that adolescence you know from from that high school age what has come of, become of them and he's covered that territory before with an encyclopedia brown type character um, in um, in, in and well, the the Archie pastiches in uh, Last of the Innocent. Um, so, yeah, um, yeah, Britt Black. The uh, um, but here Lancelot Jones is uh, as I've mentioned earlier 
uh, on the blog, uh, different prodigy PI all grown up or growing up. So we might not be in the same world as criminal, and we current, certainly can't be sure who might or might not make it to, to the story's conclusion. And then with this different art style, but a very but similar writing style, I think I think from that the the interest beyond just just a good read, uh, I think the interest for Brubaker Phillips fans is to see see from his absence, uh, see what what special. Sean Phillips brings to the table that other artists don't, and in, and in this case, yeah, the the art style I I thought was was in good, but I think one of the reasons why I really like uh, Sean Phillips' art style is so there's uh, this great book um, called Understanding Comics by Scott McCloud, um, which it is itself. A, uh, it, it's a graphic novel, so it's a comic book about comic books, and he has this this triangle or pyramid where you can place all sorts of art styles somewhere in the pyramid uh, between between three different extremes. One of them he calls reality, so so approaching photorealism. Uh, the other one meaning, so it's you know uh, 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 words and and text. More so than actual graphics, and then the the, the third area he calls uh, the picture plane, the the geometry of it, you know, geometric shapes. And I think one thing that I really really like about Sean Phillips, and I would say it's the same, it's it's also true with um, uh, with Darwin Cook, though though you know very different uh, art styles, is that. Everything fits together in terms of the characters and the background. It looks like it's one unified universe. And in th- and this book, Friday, Martin's art reminds me a little bit more of oh gosh, would it be Tintin maybe? Um, Looney Tunes as well, where the the characters are in one art style, you know, and, and very not very cartoony, not silly, but but certainly a lot less realistic than than the surrounding backgrounds well drawn and in both cases well drawn um but i i think i get i think i in in, i i think the the illusion of immersion is easier when the um uh when the foreground object and the background um have uh closer art styles and I think um, I did want to give kind of a, a shout out to the colorist of this book as well, uh, and I may I may butcher this pronunciation, but Munsa Vicente, um, who was also the colorist on the Private Eye, um, and I I would encourage readers if they haven't read the Private Eye, I think that Martin and Vicente's art style worked perfectly for the Private Eye. Um, it that book looks fabulous, especially it's it's in this widescreen format, and if you see the book that was printed from Image Comics, it's it's exceptionally wide, like it's hard to hold on to. It's a weird aspect ratio, um, but I think it was essentially designed to, you know, the panels fit a tablet. You know, because it was released digitally, I think it had something to do with the panels fitting a tablet in this widescreen format perfectly. But anyway, the book is a is a weird aspect ratio, but the art style, which that's a book set in the future. Um, kind of this dystopian future where, oddly enough, everyone wears masks, which um, takes on a whole new light uh, in today's world. But anyway, when that book came out, 
the art style I think matches that book really, really well. And again, I'm I'm kind of with you, Bubba, where I wouldn't necessarily gravitate towards this art style, um, but I could really appreciate it in the private eye. I think it fit that world perfectly, and I think it really shined in Friday. I think those, you know, like for example, that opening um, kind of establishing shot of the town. What's the town? Kings Kings Landing. Kings Hill. Kings Hill. Uh, Kings um, Hill, and the way, and, and that's an easy town to remember because I think in some of the press, Brubaker mentioned, I really didn't intend to to name it after Stephen King and his son Joe right. Hill, honestly. Right, but I mean that I loved that establishing shot of the the New England town with the snow falling. I thought the art was really strong on those kind of landscape, um, those landscape shots, and the colors are are vibrant. They're they're pretty distinctive. Um, and they have a really a really unique look to them. So I wanted to give a quick shout out to, uh, to the to the coloring work in this issue. And yeah, so the book is set in New England in 1973. Yeah, and, and the coloring uh, in, when it changes from one scene to another, you know, yes. middle of middle of the woods in winter and middle of the uh, middle of the night versus, you know, a, a, a typical 1970s small town New England. Yeah, and there's a there's a significant shift to. Um, I wrote down pages 13 and 14. Um, there's a significant shift in the color palette, and I think it's when, um, there, you know, and that's where I thought 13 and 14 looked like the private eye, which, like I said, was this kind of future, futuristic technicolor world. Um, it kind of shifted into that mode briefly, but then there were also scenes, the, the Crescent Rock um, portion of the book that talks about the local lore around the child sacrifice that had a whole different look to it so it's kind of all over the it's kind of all over the map honestly throughout this issue yep um, and, the, and that transition it's... was was both both jarring but but it was so well done yeah it, it almost looked like a a storybook from that era from the 70s right so the, the... yeah no it was a cool stylistic change yeah. and then the 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 one other thing i wanted to bring up that uh and I know I, I bring up the Coen brothers way too much on this podcast because I'm always seeing things that remind me of the Coen brothers, but um, I feel like their impact on on pretty much all mediums in the creative community is undeniable. And again, I, I saw it in Friday because I uh, the cover of the issue um, put me in mind of Fargo with the uh, kind of the sparse, uh, mostly white image because of the snow and then the red blood in the foreground standing out. I've seen a Fargo, a Fargo movie poster that I've, that, it put me in mind of. And then um, I also noticed that it seemed like Sheriff Bixby, who is, who is a male in this book, but looked very much like Francis McDormand's character in Fargo. He's wearing virtually the same like bomber style hat. Deer and insulated. It's a deer, and then insulated uh, winter parka. Yep. Yep. Yeah. And so that, th- those were the two like things that jumped out at me that, that kind of screamed Fargo. Um, again, I don't know if that was intentional at all, but that's just what it reminded me of. Yeah, it's a fun read, and uh, can't can't wait for the next issue. But I've been patiently waiting for the next issue. So definitely recommend it as a read on it on its own. You know, entirely apart from from the comparison to to, to Phillips. It's another. It's basically as a guy who does not read a whole lot um, uh, 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 digitally, just because I prefer the hard copies. Me I prefer too. the physical medium. Um, yeah, it was a fun little read. So I no, I've only be bought a, a refurbished tablet for for works like this. Yeah, yeah, I've only bought in a handful of digital comics. Um, you know, I'm definitely a print guy as well. 
Um, but again, I would, you know, have bought an occasional digital comic when just the logistics of getting the print book are, are expensive or hard to track down and I can find it easily digitally just to, to read it for the podcast or to research it or to get some backstory. But, um, and then the, the second book, you know, if you, uh, they, you know, they're teasing this, this idea of the white lady. So it'll be interesting to see how that pans out. And I did look up the, uh. The, the white lady myth, and according to Wikipedia, it's a type of female ghost typically dressed in a white dress or similar garment reportedly seen in rural areas and associated with local legends of tragedy. Um, white lady legends are found in many countries around the world. Usually they're associated with an accidental death, murder, or suicide, and the theme of loss, betrayal by a husband or fiancé, and unrequited love. Um, and, and after I read that, I, I it came to mind that my hometown in, in rural northeast Missouri, very rural northeast Missouri, even has its own version of uh, a lady in white that I've heard about from numerous people that, that, you know, the story goes it haunts this old railroad bridge out near the Des Moines River, um, right on the border between Iowa and Missouri. So that'll be interesting to see how that, uh, how that comes to fruition in the second issue. Yeah, you have the combination, you have the, the, the local legends, the Lovecraftian horror, um, the YA young adult fiction from the seventies. Um, and I think naming wise, I think it, it's, you know, the character, the, the, the main character, her name is Friday. It's definitely not a reference to the 95 comedy, you know, ice cube and Chris Tucker. It's, it's, no, the, I don't think so. Yeah. The 1940 screwball comedy, his girl Friday, it would be my guess. Um, and again, yeah. this is from what I posted earlier on, on the blog, a, a girl Friday represents a servant of a master, but ace reporter Hildy Johnson is not a servant in the film, rather the equal to Walter Jones, uh, her uh, editor and ex-husband. So, Yeah, chapter two is entitled The Night Before She Left, um, which is alluded to numerous times throughout the first issue, but we don't know what happened. So um, it sounds like that that answer will, will be coming in the second issue as well. We just know that something dramatic happened uh, the night before Friday left for college. Yeah. And knowing Ed Brubaker, it's probably not all that happy. <laughs> uh, I think that's a safe bet. Yep. So what else have we been reading lately? It's uh, The Art of Picking a Lock. Um, oh, this, the Catwoman. Yes, this came out uh, uh, June 2nd in a prestige format. It's the Catwoman 80th Anniversary 100-page Super Spectacular, which is a long enough title, I think. Um, it's basically over the last year maybe two dc has been publishing these hundred page books uh prestige formats so you have the the uh uh binding on the side with the spine and um yeah they i believe they had quite a few hundred page uh um super spectaculars in the 70s and early 80s and so they're, they're basically bringing the branding back to uh to to provide some some fairly comprehensive uh, anthologies um, and really they're 96 pages. Uh, you can only get to a hundred if you count the covers and, um, but, um, this year, 2020, uh, we're celebrating the 80th anniversary of a couple of major, uh, DC characters. Uh, I think the green lantern 80th anniversary special just came out. Um, but mostly, uh, Batman, uh, um, uh, the supporting cast in Gotham, Batman supporting cast. So we had Robin, which I haven't been able to track down uh, since, uh, the Joker, and uh, and Catwoman. Um, 
variant covers, the Catwoman, the 2000s variant cover is very much, it's, it's by Jim Lee, Scott Williams, Alex and Claire, but it's very much in the style of, of Ed Brubaker and Darwin Cook's Catwoman, where Darwin Cook, um, uh, with, with input from uh, Brubaker, redesigned the Catwoman outfit, and it's, in my opinion, it's it's the best uh, comics costume for Catwoman, and the whole thing's a a good read. Um, you know, I, I tend to like anthologies, um, though I will say, having having read the Joker one and going through the Green Lantern one, the more you like the character, the more you you hook in. So like Batman Black and White, I think is uh, remains the the greatest of the uh, superhero anthologies, and and my first, I guess, um, uh, mature uh, comic book from way back when. Um, and I like I like seeing stories told in, in just a few pages. Eight pages are most of the stories here. Are eight pages. This one uh, by Brubaker, it's uh, twelve pages. It's um, very end of the book. It's called The Art of Picking a Lock, um, where with the art and the lettering entirely by uh, Cameron Stewart. And um, it's 12 pages, not the usual eight. And I will be honest, a, an earlier story by Tom King probably had my, my more immediate attention when I was going through it, um, in, in part because it was a much more um, large-scale story. You know the stakes and everything, and, and um, Brubaker is much more of a vignette, um, but I think it holds up better. I, I having reread both both of those stories, Brubaker's is even as short as it is. It is classic Brubaker, where you have um, narration, you know, uh, contrasting with the story that's going on. In this case, uh, Selena Kyle narrating about. About her past in uh, in uh, juvenile detention, which you know kind of puts it in the same neck of the woods as my heroes have always been junkies, and um, yeah, it's it's more of a um, vignette than than the larger scale Tom King short story, um, but ext- perfectly done. I don't want to say extraordinarily well done. I think it, it's perfectly done. Um, I don't want to go into to too many details, but um, a character appears late that had a, a fairly big impact in uh, Brubaker, Brubaker's run, uh, run uh, prior run on Catwoman, um, basically relaunching the character or, or relaunching the series rather. And um, I will say no more than this, but there are some wonderful Easter eggs in the the writing in the background of this story i will say no more you have to discover it for yourself but it's uh yeah the art of picking a lock uh by ed brubaker cameron stewart uh 12 pages at the very back end of um the catwoman 80th anniversary uh book and i do think these books do sell out so so hunt it down while you can and um yeah, thoroughly enjoyed it. Highly recommended it, and I thought it was a a very nice, just um, you know, passing through from Brubaker's point of view in terms of uh, big two superhero comics. But I thought it was a very nice stop. It was a very nice yeah. That stop. was my that was my next question. Is that's the first work he's done for the big two in how many years? Five years at DC Comics, ninety nine to 04, and then a transition in 05. Five years at Marvel, 
06, 11, and the 2012 was the, the transition. Work ending on Captain America Winter Soldier, work begins on Fatal. Okay, so yeah, first first work with the big two in eight years. And yeah, Jacob Phillips has also been uh, relatively busy, I think, over the last few months as we've been kind of between Brubaker and, and Sean Phillips' books. We've had uh, two new projects from from Jacob Phillips. The uh, the uh, kind of long gestating project, That Texas Blood, which we've heard about for a while that I think got pushed back um, due to the pandemic. And then the uh, kind of surprise online book that we've already talked about a little bit, Brutal Dark, um, both with his collaborator and writer, Chris Condon. And it's interesting, yeah. though, those two books that are kind of coming out simultaneously, one's an, one's an online comic, like I said, that you can... Um, that you can subscribe to basically through Patreon for a, a dollar a month. Um, both Jacob Phillips is doing the artwork, but the artwork I think actually is quite different in each book, um, which is kind of interesting. Yeah. And, and, and on top of everything else, yeah. So, so we have a bunch of, uh, quite a bit of variety tonight. We have uh Brubaker's long form digital short form print. And then, then J- Jacob Phillips, uh, his long form print and short form digital in the case of the of Jacob Phillips work the thing we we also need to remember is that this is his his first uh, uh comic he's been doing coloring um for for Brubaker and and for Sean Phillips for his father uh for for a while now with um with criminal and i think it it really kicked off with um uh my heroes have always been junkies which you know, a criminal novella that wasn't really branded externally as such. But this is his, his, these are his first comic books. And that's also true for Chris Condon. Um, he's, you know, Chris Condon's a screenwriter. Um, you know, and apparently from, from what I've read, a big comic book fan, but this is his first uh, professional uh, writing for comics. And you can't tell. <laughs> they they no. it comes off as extraordinarily professional and I mean you know Sean Phillips uh, his his yeah if you look like you mentioned inside front cover publication designed by Sean Phillips is that I think that helps but yeah it, it this is a, as strong a debut of a new writer with a new artist um <laughs> and, and, as you'll find, I think it's pretty impressive. Yeah, and like I said, the buzz around this this comic, you know, uh, kind of, you know, confirms that. But but yeah, like I said, in in the art style is is pretty different. I mean, Brutal Dark definitely seems kind of like a, a run and gun approach. It looks like it was done relatively quickly. Um, the the colors, it's kind of almost like monotone. You know, we, with the panels being kind of you know, just a handful of colors. You know, that Texas Blood looks much more like a traditional comic, I think, and it's more traditionally colored. Um, and the the art style in, in Brutal Dark, honestly, the what it reminded me of, and again, I'll probably butcher this pronunciation because I don't know exactly know how to pronounce his name, but the the artist of the comic Outcast, which is a, a horror comic that Robert Kirkman writes, and the artist's name is Paul Azakeda. Um that's what Brutal Dark reminded me of. It looked very similar to how he draws people. Um, but that Texas Blood, I wouldn't think of of the outcast artist at all, which is funny since it's the same penciler. Um, so, so yeah, Jacob Phillips has got, you know, uh, 
can, like I said, can give two different approaches and these books are basically being done simultaneously, which, um, I'm not an artist, but that's very impressive. Yeah. And, and they're both fun reads, very different tones, very different yeah. stories that they're telling. Um, heck, uh, the, the, if we're, if we're comparing all, all, uh, both books together, all three issues. So Texas blood one and brutal dark one and two is, um, also very different pacing. We were talking uh, beforehand. So one of the things I did was, you know, look back, took in my notes, I took notes of when these issues came out and, and brutal dark has been monthly. So May 6th and then June, June 18th. And I'd much rather for, for digital comics, I'd much rather have a short, uh, releases be short, but frequent rather than, than long, but, uh, but, um, delayed as with, with Friday um, and then that Texas blood, June 24th, um, uh, uh, 22 pages is that they read very differently. Um, yeah. issue, issue one for brutal dark issue two for brutal dark, both of them, eight pages. And <laughs> you, you fly through the, the, uh, first issue. There's virtually uh, no text in the first one. Yeah. And then, and then, uh, issue two, it isn't, yeah, um, it, it it isn't a slog by any any stretch of the imagination, but it is a denser read. It's yeah, uh, and Texas Blood is pretty dense as well. It's pretty text heavy. Yeah. Um, when I reread it today, I kind of noticed that. I didn't really notice it the first time, but it's relatively text heavy. I would say more than the average comic. Maybe it's pretty wordy, um, but it reads really well. Yeah. And the the so brutal dark. I mean, and also I would say maybe part of the reason that I'm noticing the arts the 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 difference in art style. Um, it should be pointed out. Brutal Dark, of course, is a period piece set um, New York City, 1941. Uh, and then completely on the other end of the spectrum, uh, that Texas Blood is obviously set in Texas. And it's a present day. Uh, the book is set in the present day. But um, honestly, when I was reading it, it definitely has it has kind of a, a 70s or 80s feel to it. Um, I feel like the the dialogue and the look of the town on purpose is somewhat timeless. You know, it, it looks like one of those towns that still looks exactly the same as it probably did in in the 1970s, even though we're in present day. Yeah, um, and, and, and certainly past its prime. Certainly its heyday. Right. Uh, both both the 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 sheriff and and his town, uh, they probably haven't changed much since their heyday. And I think that's you know one of the 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 you know they they stayed at pretty pretty explicitly that a big theme of this is the whole getting old and it's a good you know it's, it's in the same um it's in the same not just geography but also in the same mood as hell or high water um the uh the the jeff yeah. bridges chris, chris pine movie that i recommended a while back so and that's that's a great analogy because that's another that movie set in the present day but also feels um you know, it feels like a Western, obviously, which those are usually period pieces, but it has that feel to it. Um, and then again, I mean, I think you can't help with that Texas blood. You can't help but think of no country for old men, um, basically with the setting. And it's a, you know, an aging police officer. Um, so I know that's come up a lot in the reviews for the book. But I also when I read it, um, the other reference that came to mind that I could kind of, you know, feel a similar vibe with was uh, Lonesome Dove, which is a Western, obviously, um, but it's, you know, kind of built around that same idea of an aging Texas lawman who 
kind of realizes the world is is leaving them behind. Um, so I think it kind of I'm seeing kind of shades of Lonesome Dove in that as well, which uh, I'm call. a big fan yeah. of. Yeah. And then there's there was sort of this horror angle if you looked at uh, Sean Phillips his uh, variant cover uh, for issue one, and I have seen that um, issue two has its own uh, variant cover um, out out this week that um, is Duncan Fagredo. Uh, I have never been able to pronounce his name well. Duncan Fagredo is doing the yeah, variant. Yeah, I know that name, but yeah, I'm, this, I'm in the same boat. I don't know the actual pronunciation. Yeah, so uh, my apologies to, to everyone who knows how to pronounce it, and Duncan, if hey. you name. Yeah. But you know what? You know what name I am not going to mispronounce? Sheriff Joe Bob. I know how to pronounce that. Yes. Um, there's no two ways to see Joe Bob. Make it easier for us. Yes. Right. But that, that variant cover and then uh, the standard cover for the, that Texas Blood number two, where, you know, these hands are reaching out to a guy who's uh, standing in front of the bloodstained sign for Ambrose County. Um, it, there's definitely a horror vibe, but, but from reading it, you, you find out that reading issue one you find out it was a nightmare based on a flashback for a um, an understandably traumatic traumatic event um in, in sheriff joe bob's life um so it's it's the horror of real life it's the horror of crime and and getting and and real violence and getting old and you know and again i think that points to 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 no country for old men yeah, again, I I tried not to bring up the Coen brothers again, but I had to because the, the No Country for Old Men one is too obvious that to, you have to call it out because it's um you know, it's it's exploring the same themes obviously as as that movie and it's in the same setting. Yep. And and that brings up uh an issue a, a subject we talked about offline was um you know, the Coen brothers can do whatever literally whatever they want at this point. And you know they'll get they'll get the budget they'll get the uh, the publicity and get the rave reviews and even the Oscars as as well on occasion, um, but yeah uh, if you read the back matter you read the press it's it's um, and from what we covered uh, previously on the blog and and in this in previous episodes of this podcast is that this was originally a a film you know it was a screenplay for which um, Jacob Phillips did uh, production design work. And it's it has since become uh, an, a, a comic book, and not just a comic book adaptation of, of that original screenplay. That screenplay is apparently going to be the, the bookends for this um, ongoing series with, with stories in between uh, that flesh out the characters and the world um, and that sort of thing. And it's um, yeah, I it's it's certainly sounded like um, Chris Condon wasn't able to get uh, get this get the screenplay produced um, as a film, uh, but certainly has done so as a comic book with rave reviews, very high profile, a lot of buzz, um, media sellout, you know, reprinting for at least for the uh, first issue, and. You know, you, you certainly don't have the 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 ceiling for creator-owned comic books. It's certainly um, much lower than the ceiling for, you know, uh, a film or TV. Um, you know, whether that be 
The Walking Dead or uh, on TV or, or, or Game of Thrones, you know, book adaptation or, or the latest uh, superhero adaptation, obviously the, the, the billion dollar uh, box office. Um, but I think that for that lower ce- ceiling, I think that this comic book came closer to that ceiling. It, it, uh, um, it in terms of the reception, it's made a, a potentially a bigger splash in a smaller pond, uh, certainly, um, on a smaller budget. So, so that it could afford to have, have the, the, the smaller audience and, you know, getting a really good story out there and making, making well, well-deserved names for, for both uh, the writer and now the artist as well. And, um, yeah, Robert, you had mentioned that, that, by going this route, they ha- they don't necessarily uh, close the door to an eventual, you know, eventual film adaptation. No, exactly. I mean, I'm sure they were, uh, I'm sure they were lamenting the fact that the movie didn't get made back when it was being pitched as such. But um, yeah, obviously, we've seen tons and tons of of comics be adapted later for Hollywood adaptations. So yeah, they're not they they haven't shut the door on that. If a successful comic has a much more likely shot, I'm sure of being funded than um something untested and you know the and I'm sure they had no idea that the pandemic was going to hit when it did, but obviously theaters aren't open right now, but uh you know, you can re- you can release a comic. Yeah, Bubba, did you have any other notes in regards to uh Brutal Dark or that Texas Blood that we wanted to to touch on before we move on? I think I think that was about it. Um, just yeah, for an American writer, British artist, same same sort of setup that um, Brubaker, Ed Brubaker, and Sean Phillips have. Yeah, they extremely evocative comic books, both of them. You have a contemporary crime comic in Texas. You have you have a um, a period piece in New York, and then you set those alongside the uh, the two Brubaker books we mentioned. You know, a uh, short story set in Gotham, and then now you have this ongoing kind of uh, sequel to a uh, a Encyclopedia Brown book that never that never actually happened. That's aiming towards well, not only Lovecraftian horror, but you you, you mentioned the uh, the local legends, so that you know paints. Or uh, aims more toward the original, uh, what was it, Bear, uh, Blair Witch Project, and then you have all of them firmly in the uh, genre of crime comics. And yeah, we have had we have had some real good reading the last couple months. Yeah, been, no, been and enjoyable. I hope. Just as an aside, I hope that uh, I hope that Chris Condon keeps up the essays in the back of both Brutal Dark and uh, that Texas Blood. That's just a nice touch to get a little. Um, a little bonus insight into what the create, you know, what's what's going on in the creator's mind. Of course, Ed Brubaker does that, so yeah, big fan of just having, even if it's just a page. I think that that kind of makes the whole package come together and um, kind of helps to establish that relationship with the readers. So yeah, looking forward to uh, Wednesday. So this is a big week um, around here because we we finally have a new Ed Brubaker and Sean Phillips book coming out. Um, and we have that Texas Blood number two coming out. So um, obviously we, we look forward to, to reading those and diving in um, and then, again, seeing what the, what the future holds once we hear more about the next Brubaker and Phillips project on the horizon.
and we'll be back to review pulp we'll, and uh probably that texas led too while we're here and yeah uh, yeah so yeah i guess we'll we'll kind of wrap things up here i know we always like to touch on some some recommendations here to close down the show um i know bubba i think actually has one prepared i don't really have one prepared i'll just uh give a quick shout out um to, to something that I enjoyed during this kind of pandemic period. Um, just uh, a quick snapshot of kind of how my last few months have been spent. Um, you know, we do have a, a lake cabin that's uh, pretty much in the middle of nowhere up, up in Northeast Missouri. Um, and obviously when the pandemic hit, everything got canceled off the calendar. So we've had more time to go up there. It's been a chance to get out of the house and, um, you know, not go stir crazy. So we've been going up there quite often on the weekends. And again, there's no internet. So pretty much off the grid up there. Um, so no streaming, um, no internet connection. So, you know, busted back into the DVD collection a little bit that had, you know, been getting some dust on it, um, here at home. But anyway, revisited Dick Tracy recently. Um, the 19, the 1990, uh, film by uh, Warren Beatty. He produced, directed, and starred in the film and uh, didn't even really realize, but after watching it, so yeah, I put, put two and two together that this is the 30th anniversary of Dick Tracy, which is kind of hard to believe on a lot of levels, but um, yeah, just a good time to revisit it. Uh, you know, I'm sure a lot of you have seen it, as I've seen it many, many times, but it had been um, several years, I think, since revisiting it, but thoroughly enjoyed uh, Dick Tracy. Of course, there's a, a whole um, kind of a big star-studded cast. And, you know, besides Warren Beatty, you have Al Pacino, Madonna, uh, Glenn Headley, um, and a lot of other folks. So, um, yeah, really enjoyed that. I, and again, I imagine you appreciate the, the, like the supporting cast, the cameos a lot more now, now that you recognize them. Yeah, there's yeah, uh, Dustin Hoffman. I want to say Dick Van Dyke is the DA. Dick Van Dyke is the DA, um, and then the uh, the guy from Homeland plays Eighty Eight Keys. His name escapes me at the moment, but I don't think um, I ever knew that. Wow, yeah, yeah, I know he's he's much younger. Uh, Mandy Mandy Potemkin, um, but who is who is the the star opposite Claire Danes in Homeland, which is. I, I re- you know, when I first watched Homeland, I, it took me a while to establish who that was. I knew I recognized him, but he's got a big, a big bushy beard in Homeland yeah. and he's clean shaven and, and Dick Tracy, but I love the name 88 keys. I don't know if that has origins in the, the original comic strip or not, but that's a, that's a classic character name. Um, the piano player in the nightclub, he's an interesting character and obviously sets the plot in motion, but, and I would yeah, say it's music, some of the best music Madonna has ever done. Oh, it's really good, and it, it uh, yeah, Stephen Sondheim, you know, composed many of those songs for the for the film, and the great Danny Elfman score, which Bubba and I are both big fans of Batman '89, um, and I think, you know, that was kind of right when Danny Elfman was kind of becoming. I think he probably rode the success of Batman '89 and got the Dick Tracy job in 1990, um, but there's a great score, and then. And similar to Batman 89, also the the sets are um, kind of in the same vein where where they've, you know, I don't know the, the exact science behind how they put them together, but obviously there's a, you know, they're artistically drawn um, when you see those big landscape shots of the city. But it's got a great look. Um, so, yeah, Animate, I encourage you to I think revisit. animated matte paintings, if I remember what, what uh, okay. they're making of, yeah, that... that um, 
these just expansive uh, uh, shots of a city that never did and never could exist. Yeah. And, and they, they added animated elements to it to, to bring it to life. And, yeah, you know, everything has a generic name. It's, it's hotel, William Forsyth, cafe. William Forsyth plays, uh, plays Flat Top. Um, but it's a, yeah, it, it really holds up well. And like I said, I think I appreciate it uh, in different ways than I did when I was a kid, which I also loved the movie when I was a kid. But um, the music is, is really fantastic. Awesome. Well, that's a full-fledged recommendation. I appreciate, appreciate you having it for us. Yeah, but take it away, Bubba. I'm anxious to hear your your recommendation on this episode. Certainly. I actually have uh, ended up, um, since we were talking about digital comics, took a note or two, is a very, very quick recommendation from a guy who does not like to purchase digital comics. I don't like spending my money on digital comics so that, you know, uh, uh, the Conan, the new Conan, the Barbarian books I get from Marvel, they come with the free digital code. I have been using those codes Um put them on the app so i can read them when i'm when i'm away from home um but comiXology uh there was a, a cg uh animated uh scooby movie simply called scoob i think that was originally scheduled for a theatrical release they went ended up going straight to digital uh but because of that uh they announced um a couple months ago that um that a ton of Scooby-Doo comics have been put, have been uh, set for for free of charge at Comicsology. So so, but from now until September seventh, you can can grab a lot of digital Scooby-Doo comics. And the one I in particular recommend as as a fun read for for me and my boys is Scooby-Doo Team Up. Ran for um, I think ninety nine or a hundred digital issues, but uh, fifty print issues and uh, eight trade paperbacks. Um, uh, we got all eight volumes and we just now finished, uh, a, uh, a, 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 gosh, two month read through, through every, uh, every book. If you're a big fan of, uh, the DC universe, big fan of the Hanna-Barbera universe. So you not only see Scooby with say Legion of superheroes and the justice of society, America, um, and, and time travel in both cases. Um, also Flintstones and the Jetsons times time travel in both cases. Um, and yeah, it's, it's a very much like the cartoon Batman, the brave and the bold, uh, in terms of being a team up book, um, and just being a lot of fun to read and definitely worth the price for, for getting, you know, 50 issues for, for absolutely nothing, uh, with, uh, comiXology. But my, uh, um, my more serious recommendation is going in the completely opposite direction from uh, fam- family-friendly uh, crime comics, or, well, horror comics since they deal with ghosts, to not, in- not at all family-friendly uh, horror uh, movie. Um, Event Horizon came out in 1997, um, has since become something of a cult classic, uh, starring Lawrence Fishburne, Sam Neill, uh, directed by Paul W. S. Anderson, um, the the uh, kind of the low rent Anderson director, um, no best known for the Mortal Kombat, uh, the original Mortal Kombat movie, and for the Resident Evil series. So video game, you know, horror or violent uh, video game adaptations. Um, Event Horizon, yeah. So so this is a movie that kind of came and went without a whole lot of notice. Um, but has since gotten a bit of a cult following. And this goes back, you know, uh, 
not to me going to to the the cabin on weekends, but me going home uh, from from college um, uh, late at night, nothing nothing to watch on TV. My mom had uh, HBO and Cinemax, and there were a couple of movies that I would have never seen otherwise uh, that I caught uh, during the, that uh, span of a few years, including uh, Train Spotting. I think was probably the one I most fell in love with, um, but. Event Horizon is one is another one as well. Uh, Lawrence Fishburne, Sam Neill. I said um, it is. So I hesitate to say that it's Lovecraftian horror because, unlike the original pulp stories written by by H.P. Lovecraft, when you now say Lovecraftian horror, you know, or, or you know, you you get a collection from your local Barnes and Noble uh, of you know Cthulhu books or or Lovecraft books, you you. You miss a little bit of it because you know what what to expect. You know that that there's going to be um, unearthly, um, you know, almost you know, alien or interdimensional horror that that drives drives the uh, the protagonist and everybody else to the brink of insanity and beyond. You know, um, so so placing in that category is a bit of a spoiler. You know, kind of, I would say the same thing about Fatal. You know, describing it as Lovecraftian horror noir kind of uh, spoils a little bit of where it's heading, just as much as that uh, that that cover to issue number one with with the monster on it. Um, but yeah, Lovecraftian horror set in space in the future. Um, the tagline on the uh, the theatrical re- release: "Infinite space, infinite terror," and uh, yeah, Friday. Uh, with with Ed Brubaker's uh, PR, you know, him mentioning Lovecraft, kind of reminded me of this movie. Uh, 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 my wife and I, my wife saw it on her own as well, and it'd been years since either of us had seen it. Saw so it was on Netflix, so we caught it, and quite enjoyable. It's a short movie, 96 minutes. There was apparently a much longer cut that um, got terrible, um, terrible reviews from test screenings, and apparently the footage for that longer cut. Um, has been has been lost or destroyed, but honestly, uh, I think that that less is more. Kind of like with Jaws, you know, the less you see the shark, the scarier it is. In this case, the the short, it didn't need to be any longer. It was basically a filmed uh, short story or novella, uh, set in the future, set in in, in uh, uh, outer space and the uh, um, in the outer edge of the solar system. Um, Neptune, I believe, outside of Neptune, um, in the in the upper atmosphere of Neptune, actually, a ship that had been presumed lost um, has has finally appeared out of nowhere, and a rescue ship is is sent um, to find out what happened, and that's you know that's a scary enough premise as it is, you know, kind of like a, a Bermuda Triangle uh, ship appearing out of nowhere, um, and yeah. It, it is it is extremely well-made horror i think you know it's 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 simple it's not you know it's not life-changing or anything but i think i think some at least some of the um uh, of our listeners um the ones who are drawn particularly the ones who are drawn more to to books like fatal and uh, if we're uh, right about where it's headed a book like friday I think they would be would get a kick out of uh, Event Horizon, and it's also just um, it's uh, 
an interesting film to watch in terms of its cultural context. On the one hand, this was one of, I think, two movies that really kind of uh, predicted what the Matrix would do. It, it did the it did the Matrix stuff. You know, the uh, it had uh, uh, um, the Prodigy had the uh, uh, soundtrack at the um, running during the closing credits. Uh, it came out August ninety seven. Event Horizon did made like sixty million, came and gone. Dark City came out February ninety eight. Twenty seven million came and gone. And then the Matrix came out summer or March of ninety nine and made four hundred and sixty five million dollars. You know, half a billion dollars, and they're they're already uh, in pre production for a fourth Matrix movie. When we're never when when we're, I think we would be lucky to see a like a Criterion Collection type release for something like uh, Event Horizon or Dark City. Uh, but yeah, Event Horizon from 1997, um, 96 minutes, rated R, which should go without saying. Yeah, nice recommendation. So there's a couple of uh, couple flicks from the 90s to, uh, to put on your pandemic viewing list um, from, from the Undertow crew. And yeah, we're looking forward to like I said, we're going to try to hustle and get this out, but we've got a big week here with Pulp coming out and that Texas Blood number two. So look forward to those releases. And uh, yeah, as always, we will do our best to keep you updated on uh, the world of Brubaker and Phillips. You can, of course, find all our episodes at undertow.podbean.com or on iTunes. Reach out to us. We love to hear from our listeners at Undertow Podcast on Twitter or send us an email, undertowpodcast at gmail.com. I think we will sign off for the evening. But, uh, yeah, great talk, Bubba. Thanks for joining me. Marvelous. I'd miss this, and I hope we uh, get back uh, sooner rather than later. Definitely. Yeah, we appreciate everybody tuning in, and uh, we look forward to seeing you on down the road. Thank you. There's a word.